You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Today, the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth will be recognizing the Council's International Educator of the Year. And in the audience, as at most of our events, will be scores of students. We are especially pleased that our luncheon speaker is Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt, a book that explains how we arrived where disagreement has become so bitter and partisan, but also, most importantly, he gives us a sensible and achievable guide as to how we can engage in discussion and, believe it or not, even love your enemy. Thanks for coming today. It's great to be with you. Thank you. I often hear people say when we talk about how the rhetoric now has become just so inflammatory, historians will say, well, this is not the first time that this has happened, but it feels different now and it seems more widespread. That's because it's worse than at any time in our, our lifetimes. Most political scientists believe that the polarization, the hatred that we have is worse now than at any time since the Civil War. And obviously that's in our lifetimes, and that's really alarming to us for a bunch of different reasons. To begin with, it's an incredibly impractical problem insofar as that nobody's persuading anybody. And so we have a lot of political debate, a lot of vitriol, a lot of bitter you know, hatred about politics, and yet we're locking down, so we're not making any progress. And the second is it's morally bothersome for us in the United States. I ask audiences all the time, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? Every hand goes up at every event. And what that suggests to me is that, look, if we're not making progress, uh, which is to say that we have an impractical strategy for talking about politics, if we're becoming unhappy because we're talking about people with whom we love, people that we love in a way that's hateful, uh, we have a, a deeply problematic situation that we need to fix in this country, and we can. But you're seeing this type of situation with populism and, and really difficult political situations in France and obviously in the UK yeah. right now. Is there something different about what we're seeing here in the United States? No. What's different is that we are being more like the French. And that's actually not historically unprecedented. Or Usually what happens with populism and polarization is that people become very envious and very bitter in the decade or a decade and a half after a financial crisis, which happens a couple of times a century. And there's a lot of good research on this. Populism becomes politically salient in the decade after because all of the returns to economic growth go to the top 20% of the income distribution. When that happens, politicians jump in. Politicians in democratic capitalist countries are not leaders. They're followers. They see a parade going down the street and they jump out in front of it. And the message after these financial crises is somebody's got your stuff and I'm going to get it back. Whether it's an immigrant or a foreigner or a banker or a rich person, there's always a culprit. And that's why we see competing populisms on right and left. And that's where the anger comes from. But you really make a difference between anger and contempt. And you yeah. define that so carefully. Tell me a bit more about that. Anger is not problematic in any discussion about public policy. And one of the things I talk an awful lot about is the importance of disagreement, which is competition. Excellence comes from competition, whether it's in sports or democracy or the economy, but also in the world of ideas. We need to disagree with each other, but we have to disagree well. What we're doing very poorly in the United States is not disagreeing too much and not even being too angry. There's very interesting social psychological research that shows that anger is uncorrelated with separation and divorce among married couples. You know, thank God, because you know, I'm married to a Spaniard. Almost 30 <laughs> years running and, you know, plenty of anger. It's no problem. The problem is when you mix disgust in with anger, which is a, a different emotion. And that turns somebody with whom you disagree into a social pathogen. It's, it goes from the hot emotion of anger to the cold emotion of contempt. 
Contempt is the, the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. I feel disgust toward you. That makes a permanent enemy, and that's what locks sure. us down into factions. It's what we see today. We have a contempt crisis in American culture, not an anger problem. Well, someone that you and I have both had the chance to meet and you have spent a lot of time with him is the Dalai Lama. Tell us about how you came into contact with him and how has he shaped your philosophy? The Dalai Lama is somebody that I met six and a half years ago. And the reason was because I wanted to have a, a big international conversation about the morality of the free enterprise system. I thought, who could do that best? Who is somebody that's typically associated not with the point of view that you think of with the American Enterprise Institute, the institution that I lead? I thought, huh, I wonder if I could get the Dalai Lama to agree to this. So I, I, I did what I had to do. You know, I you know, got on a plane, I went to Dharamsala, and I got an audience with His Holiness, and I said, Your Holiness, I, I want to have a worldwide conversation about the morality of the free enterprise system. I want to expose people to new points of view. And lo and behold, he said yes, and a beautiful friendship was born. We've written together several times. We've uh, collaborated on many projects together, and I see him. Uh, he's become a dear friend uh, and a mentor to me. And I see him a couple of times a year at his home in Dharamsala. He doesn't leave India anymore. He's turning 84 on July 6th, as a matter of fact. And, and so I, I go to see him now, as opposed to him coming to see me in the United States. And it's a beautiful thing. And I asked him. And you hike up that hill. Yeah. And, and I love it, too. And it's actually, he's improved my meditation practice dramatically. <laughs> and, and I said, Your Holiness, what should I do when I feel contempt? Because this is really the issue. You know, for, for, the, for many years, my, my, my research has been institutional. So far as I see a problem, and so we need better government, we need better politicians, we need an institution. That's actually wrong in the case of contempt. What we need is a revolution of each individual's heart. We need self-improvement. So I said, Your Holiness, when I feel contempt for somebody, when I'm treated with contempt by someone, what should I do? And what I detail in the book is all the instructions that he gave me on how I can choose the response to my stimulus by maximizing the space between stimulus and response. Buddhist masters have always talked about that, but, but by the way, your mother apparently is a Buddhist master because she taught you to count to 10 when you're angry. Same idea. And then to, to choose your response to be the master of yourself as opposed to a slave to your feelings and to answer contempt with warm-heartedness and as such to be more persuasive, to be happier, and to help your country. Let's talk about being happier. One of the things that I got out of your book is that I should think about smiling more. It's true. And you know, this is one of the most interesting things in modern social psych research and brain science research is that, that attitude follows action, not vice versa. So if you want to be more grateful and happy in your life, express gratitude even when you don't feel it. When, when you talk about smiling, you know, it's a very interesting thing. I have a whole chapter on, on how nice guys actually finish first, and nice girls for that matter. Nice leaders are actually perceived as stronger leaders, and one of the ways to be nicer is to act nicer, and one of the most important ways to do that is to smile more. And certainly for longevity of keeping your job. Absolutely. People like you a lot more. But there's, uh, there's muscles in the corners of your eyes called the orbicularis oculi muscles, and when you scrunch those up, which is the true happy smile, there's only one smile that's associated with happiness. Uh, not the one you get from the flight attendant who's like, you know, good morning. You know, that's not it. It's, it's when you scrunch up the corners of your eyes, notwithstanding what happens with your mouth, you will fool your brain into feeling happier. Your, your, your neurotransmitters will correspond to that. You'll, you'll be a happier person if you act happier. Now, I enjoy watching you on some of the morning shows, but there's also just this sort of anger that comes across when you're not on the air. Right, yeah. And you talk about this, uh, the addictive uh, nature that we have with our screens yeah. and, this, and the fact that people are really looking for a way to generate profit. How do we work against that? Well, we, we have to rebel. We have to stand up to the man, as hippies used to say in the 60s. 93% of Americans say they hate how divided we become as a country. 
And by the way, almost one in five Americans have stopped talking to a family member or a close friend because of politics since the 2016 election. It's completely catastrophic. Huge majority of us hate it. Well, if 93% of us hate how divided we become, first question is, why do we behave with contempt? And that's an addiction question. But then the next question is, what about the other 7%? And the answer is, it's not a habit for them. It's a way of life. It's a living. There's an outrage industrial complex in this country that's getting rich and powerful and famous or getting simply clicks and followers by setting us against each other. And they enjoy it. They like it. It's profitable for them. And we need to stand up to that because we're being bullied and terrorized. But it must work because certainly President Trump uses it to fire up his base. You see other politicians doing it. So again, to use your word, how do we rebel against that? To begin with, we have to recognize that we're addicted to it um, in the same way that people get addicted to cigarettes. There's a neurotransmitter called dopamine, everybody knows about it at this point, that's stimulated when you get a little reward. And you get a little reward when somebody says that the people who disagree with you are stupid and evil. You're not proud of that. You don't like it. You don't like the downstream effect of that. And yet, you keep coming back for more again and again. And we have a contempt addiction in the same way that people will be addicted to all sorts of, of suboptimal communications. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing that I put in the book is I talked to a, probably the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation, a guy named John Gottman at, at University of Washington in Seattle. And he talks about how people become addicted. They become accustomed to treating each other with contempt in marriage relationships. And it's the marriage killer. It leads to divorce. And, and people don't even know they're doing it. And this is what happens. A little reward, a little getting accustomed to it, doing it over and over again, and pretty soon we're locked down in factions and persuading no one. How should we be more effective in persuading others? Do we need to listen more? Well, there's a lot that goes into actually persuading others, but to begin with, we have to recognize what's our goal. You know, when I've been writing this book, and it sounds like I'm writing kind of a kumbaya book, right? And so a lot of journalists will say, well, what about people who are actually evil? Actually evil people. And I said, well, okay, we're not talking about Hamas firing rockets into the United States. We're talking about other Americans that you say are evil because of what they believe. Correct. Okay. What's your goal? What's your goal? Is it to put them in jail? Well, no. Is it to go to their house at night and harm them? No. Is it to drive them into exile? Of course not. Your goal is to convince them. Have you ever convinced somebody with insults? Nobody in the history of humanity has ever been persuaded with hatred. Therefore, we have to do something different. Let's think about what our goal actually is. And if it is persuasion, treating people with contempt is the most counterproductive way to take care of it. It's a very self-interested argument, and yet it's eluded a lot of people. People will say, oh, wow, that's actually true. And so to begin with, to be less contemptuous and to be more persuasive, we have to recognize our goal actually should be persuasion. Almost all of us share certain values. Yeah. What are those? The values that almost everybody shares is to push opportunity to the people who need it the most. Virtually every American believes in that. Now, how do you execute that's really different between right and left, between Democrats and Republicans, between religious and secular people? Those are big differences, but we agree on that fundamental moral center. That's kind of the center of the American experiment. You're going to find some people who are really pathological. It's like, nah, I hate poor people. You know, I don't want poor people to be lifted up, but I've met very few people like that. My left-wing and my right-wing friends, they agree on this. So basically, when you listen to each other, you say, let me understand what your big moral purpose is. Then people are not really threatened. And you say, you know, we agree on this. We disagree on the way to get it. So let's talk about different ways to do it. And you can have a very productive conversation with nearly anybody. And that's a patriotic thing to do. And that's what I want more of in the United States. Well, I read your book last weekend. It's only about 200 pages long. It makes you think. And I'm glad that you're here and that we're going to have about 100 students hear your talk as well as all of our members. 
I hope that perhaps a lot of people on Capitol Hill might have a copy of the book too. Well, Arthur, thanks again for being our guest on Global IQ Minute. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.